Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. Our guest tonight will be Robert Childs, who is the Executive Director of the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition, and then David J. Hansen, who operates a website called Alcohol Problems and Solutions. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, uh, go to our website, hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest tonight is Robert Childs, Executive Director of the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition. We're going to bring him right on the air right now. Robert, how are you doing this evening? Good. Thanks for having me this evening. Well, I'm glad that you're here. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about harm reduction in the South. Are there any special issues or any differences to doing harm reduction in the South than uh, elsewhere in the in the United States? I'd say the number one thing is resources. Um, in the South, we uh, oftentimes have zero city or state resources to work with, and so that causes instantly some problems. Uh, the other thing we encounter is instead of there, you know, being uh, several people per agency working on the issue, we in North Carolina only have a couple people for the entire state, which definitely puts a hamper in our ability to provide comprehensive services and advocacy. Well, that sounds like uh, quite quite a difficulty to work against. I understand that there was a summit on sex work in the South. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, that was a really lovely event that we recently hosted with a couple other um, groups. And what we did is the sex workers in the South, they feel um, like they are experiencing a lot of extra stigma. Uh, One, because we're working in the South. um, And two is because in the South we have a lot of people with uh, the belief that they're going to get potentially arrested for, one, doing sex work or Two, for just carrying condoms. There's a lot of um, belief throughout the South that, you know, I can't carry condoms because I'm fearful of arrest. So what's happened is we wanted to come together and talk about that issue as well as how can we do sex work safer in the South. Um, And we talk a lot about the stigma that everybody was encountering um, and also how can we work on making people's lives safer. And we hosted it in a church out in Asheville on December 2nd, and we had a lot of great groups who work with sex workers from all over the South attend. And it was a really great, well-meaning group. And one of the things we're going to do is, from that group, we're going to form a Southern Sex Worker Advocacy Group that's going to bind together to work together on sex worker issues that we face in the South. So do uh, do the police in the South arrest uh people for carrying condoms, or is that a myth? Um, Well, what normally happens is it will be utilized as evidence that somebody's doing sex work. Normally what will happen is somebody won't be, that won't be as, you know, on the record of why they made it, but they are using it to basically get ahead on the arrest, or they know if somebody is in a certain zone and they're carrying condoms, they then will arrest them for prostitution. And we have lots of people reporting uh, that fear. Um, When we talk to the police, they say we are not arrested.
testing people for carrying condoms, but when we talk to the sex workers, we get a different perspective. So one of the things we do at the Harm Reduction Coalition is we actually have started doing drug user and sex worker stigma trainings as well as needle stick reduction trainings with law enforcement around the state to kind of like work on that issue to help officers understand why it's important for people to carry condoms and important to carry um, safer use equipment and not to discourage people from not using it. Yeah. What can the sex workers do or the people that carry condoms? What can they do? Do they have to stop carrying them or what did you suggest they do? Yeah, We work with a lot of people who have just stopped carrying condoms, uh, which isn't good at all. Um, What we try and encourage people to do instead is have like a stash place where you can stick your condoms if you're fearful of it. we really encourage people, you know, you need to keep doing this to protect yourself. Um, but some people just, they won't take uh, condoms because they're fearful of this situation, which is really horrific. Well, it sounds really awful. I mean, so many of these uh, things, they really are a, a kind of illegal search and seizure, not just with the sex workers, but with drug users, too. I mean... A lot of people consider this unconstitutional to tell people, you know, turn out your pockets. We want to see if you've got drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things we've been, you know, working with people as well is kind of doing like a know your rights workshop with folks to say you can do this, you can, you know, do X, Y, Z. And people find that helpful. So um, we're excited. We just got a couple of those videos that we can now show so we can. Uh, provide them to our network members that we got at the DPA conference, uh, which we can expand the Know Your Rights trainings to users and sex workers around the state. So we're very excited about that. Okay. I understand that you've uh, done some work to use law enforcement as harm reduction advocates. And how does that work? So one of the – I you started when I came to Carolina uh, two years ago. I worked a lot with Vocal in New York and wanted to replicate that model. But that model isn't necessarily the best model for the South and Carolina. Um, We found that if I brought a bunch of people who use drugs and talked about it to the legislator, that a lot of the legislators just turned off and wouldn't listen to anything that we would say or that they wouldn't meet with us entirely at all. So what we did is we tried to find uh, individuals that the legislators would be very interested in meeting uh, with or people that they couldn't say no to meeting with due to their individual statures. And we found the most successful people to work with were people of law enforcement and people who were in the military. So what we do is we have um, law enforcement call the legislators. We have law enforcement go with us to the legislature Uh, We have law enforcement do petitions. We have law enforcement um, try and do um, advocacy in various capacities to uh, sway the legislators to be more harm reduction friendly. And we've actually had a lot of success with that. And we've also recently been able to hire two law enforcement officers who are going to do advocacy for us as well. So we're very excited about that. But one, the really good thing is we've been able to reach – to the Republicans, and they've been very interested in a lot of our work working with the law enforcement. And they also, we work a lot on syringe decriminalization, and they really like this 
the super right wing Republicans really like the decriminalization thing because they don't like a lot of our laws that are restricted. So we've had a lot of success with uh, Tea Party Republicans on that aspect. So they like that individual liberty thing and being able to take care of yourself. And the officers like it because we know if you decriminalize needles or legalize syringe exchange, you decrease needles by 66%. And that's really important. While in Carolina, we have one out of three officers getting needle sticks and 23, 28% of officers getting multiple needle sticks. Now, that's interesting you mentioned. Um, I know Ron Paul is a possible candidate for president, and he's talking about ending the drug war. That's what I heard. And what do you think about that? Sorry, you just broke up on my cell phone for that second portion. Oh, I I was uh, mentioning Ron Paul was talking about ending the drug war. And what did you think about that? Um, I I love that. Um, we've actually found there's a variety of Ron Paul-style Tea Party Republican folks in the North Carolina legislature, and talking to them, they're actually you know way more progressive than most of the left um, most of the leftist legislators we work with, and so it's very uh, we've had a lot of success working with the uh, very right wing of the North Carolina legislature and trying to. Uh, work on some of the drug war issues. And so we've actually, they've been way more approachable than the Democrats, which is kind of interesting um, on these issues because they just, they can't stand how much of basically a waste on finances it is. And so we pretty much, when we we have, um, when we've had conferences where the right wing has showed up and they talk about how they just don't like it from a cost-benefit and also that it endangers law enforcement's life when they have this law enforcement solving real crimes, such as going after rape victims and murder, you know, instead of nonviolent crimes. Yeah, and it's also a very much a constitutional issue. If anyone looks at the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution, it says that, you know, the Constitution is limited to the powers I mean, the U.S. the federal government is limited to the powers specified by the Constitution. Really, to have drug prohibition, it requires a constitutional amendment. Mm. So the the drug the drug laws the federal drug laws are really invalid. It's like yeah. you know we don't have a federal driver's license because the Constitution doesn't have <laughs> the Constitution doesn't have the power to regulate automobile driving. The states do. Yeah. So we have state driver's licenses. And that's the way it's supposed yeah. to be. And, you know, some some of our recent politicians from Nixon on have really sidestepped the Constitution a lot. I'm not, happy with it. I'm not a right wing at all. I'm extreme left wing. I usually vote socialist <laughs> workers. I usually vote socialist yeah. workers party, but I really say, you know, the Constitution is there for a reason. If you're going to change it, you have to do it with due process. Have the constitutional yeah. amendment. Vote for it. Pass it. Don't you can't yeah. sidestep the due process. Well, that's my little rant there. <laughs> <laughs> I think you do very well with our right wing out here. Well, I find that on certain issues like this, uh, you know, socialists and extreme right wing are in agreement. It's the middle yeah. that's saying that saying, "Oh well, no, we don't understand this." Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's pretty clear. The Constitution is pretty clear. If you want to ha- have 
new federal powers, you need amendments. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's another issue here. Um, well, I'll tell the audience. You gave me some questions to ask you, so I'm going to ask, <laughs> you know, because we're not trying to yeah. hide this from them. Uh, but you talked about it, you talked about uh, injection drug use in immigrant communities in the South. Yeah. And, yeah. Tell me about that. Sure. So uh, one of the things uh, we do outreach all over the state, and we got interested in working with the immigrant communities because we saw a lot more drug use within them, mostly with pain pills, so they could keep working during the day. And what we discovered is that there is occasionally, you know, what not what you would consider standard injection drug use, but people have like one syringe per farm camp. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is just injecting pain pills, they're injecting vitamins, um, they're injecting antibiotics, um, and sometimes injecting hormones so uh, people are able to work all day and stay healthy. So they're going to have, they're not getting high off of it. They're just using it for medication management. And the reason why they use a syringe over taking pills is because a lot of the uh, Latin American workers who come here, they come from cultures where people, if you're sick, you go get a shot. So Mm -hmm. they use that same administration route. But unfortunately, it's so hard to get a syringe if you're an immigrant in Carolina that a lot of people are going to get hepatitis from sharing that one needle and also that people are prone to abscesses. So what we do is we hired a former farm worker to go into the farm camps and do education about how to do it safer. So that's a large thing that we encountered, and we're really excited about the new rapid hep C test because now we can go in and test people for hepatitis C uh, to see if there's potentially transfer of that disease in the camp. But it's a really big issue. Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about the syringe laws in North Carolina. I thought it was only Texas where it was illegal. So it's kind of like a weird law in Carolina. So you can purchase a syringe. You can carry a syringe. But if you're going to potentially use that syringe for anything illegal, then the syringe is illegal. Okay. So then it becomes drug drug paraphernalia, is that it? Then it becomes drug paraphernalia, yeah. And so one of the problems we encounter is we know minorities are eight times less likely to have a syringe sold to them, which has caused a lot of problems. So we know minorities oftentimes are way more likely to get HIV or viral hepatitis from injecting because they can't get their own needle. So that's a really bad (laughs) situation in Carolina. Um, and we know that's mostly uh, the study that was done was by Research Triangle Institute, and that was done in a very progressive area. So we know that realistically in the rest of North Carolina, it's a lot worse than that. The other thing is uh, syringe exchange isn't legal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have five underground exchanges in Carolina, one that's trans only, and the other four serve anybody. And they're all way too busy um, and, you know, are struggling with uh, getting enough supplies because um, we just have too much need and people can't keep up with the demand with all the supplies that are needed. 
so that has been a very limited fact, uh, faction that we've had to encounter. Um, but I think in North Carolina, they exchanged about 140 syringes last year. Um, there's a really active group that, you know, risk their lives and risk incarceration uh, to serve the people for the public good. Um, and it's really sad that they have to do that. You know, it's, it's just really unfortunate. <laughs> and we've actually had um, five people incarcerated for doing syringe exchange out of the nine people who do it in North Carolina. And that's really unfortunate, but it, it shows you the passion of the people here to provide life-saving services. Well, it's really impressive, um, you know, their passion to do this is just really, yeah. you know, moving. Um, I, yeah. I hadn't realized that you could not uh, operate syringe exchange in North Carolina. No. Um, the one in Asheville does it out in the public and in the open. Mm -hmm. um, and the guy who runs it there, he's amazing. His name's Michael Harney, and he's totally out about what he does and goes and tells the police what he's up to, and they let him be because, they see it's a benefit to the public good. Um, but, you know, in the other areas, they'll just lock you up. So, um, you know, it's really, really tough <laughs> to, to do it. We, we, so we recently lost one of our exchanges to incarceration, and they, um, they were forced to go without their methadone and experience some extreme withdrawal symptoms, which was really sad as well. That is really sad to hear about. So, um, so are you working to uh, decriminalize syringes and to make syringes we are, open? Um, yeah, so we're working specifically to just decriminalize syringes. We don't view syringe exchange as necessarily the answer for Carolina right now because we believe no syringe exchange legislation would pass in our current legislature. The Democrats used to have control of the House and Senate and couldn't pass it. So we know it's realistically an extremely tough uphill battle, and so that's not necessarily the solution to our state. We actually want to do something way more progressive, which is to just flat-out decriminalize needles entirely. Mm -hmm. So nobody could ever uh, be arrested for carrying a syringe ever. And we knew, um, I used to run a syringe exchange in New York, and one of the big problems we'd have with the police is they would lose people's syringe exchange cards and then would arrest them for syringes. And if we just buy needles entirely, we will never have that problem because anybody can carry a syringe. It's not an issue. And so that's something we really want to push. And we also know that realistically there's never going to really be that much funding for a syringe exchange in Carolina that comes from the city or the state, we know it's really uh, not that realistic to think that that's going to happen. So uh, what we want to do instead is just provide universal access for people around the state so anybody can get it. Um, so we think, you know, that will be a better model. And it's also more sellable to the public. Um, people really, really, um, they focus on a lot of the negative stereotypes that syringe exchanges have that aren't true and the negative myths. Mm -hmm. And what we do is if we just talk about syringe decriminalization, we put it as an officer safety initiative. 
So mm-hmm. all we talk about is officer safety by decriminalizing needles because they have such a high rate of needle sticks. So we think this is a better, more sellable model for Carolina, and it just happens to be a really amazing <laughs> progressive measure as well. Um, and lots of people win by it, whether it's our 680,000 diabetics or, you know, our 50,000 injection drug users or our large law enforcement community who will have less needle sticks, you know. So then do diabetics uh, require a prescription? Um, No, yeah, we don't want it to uh, require a prescription at all. No, no, no. I mean, currently, currently, in North yeah. Carolina, do diabetics require a prescription to get needles from a drugstore? Uh, no, they don't. Um, that's a really good portion of the law. Um, but we do have problems with pharmacists selling them because pharmacists can sell at their own discretion. Mm-hmm. So there's been um, so the study I mentioned earlier where we know that pharmacists are eight times less likely to sell to a minority is mm-hmm. one of the outcomes that's come. So there's just blatant racism. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other issue that folks encounter is most people know everybody in their community, and mm-hmm. if they'll know if you know if Steve is a diabetic or not. So they're like, "Why do you need a needle?" You know, and won't sell it to him. And they think if they don't sell it to him, they won't do you know that behavior. But all it does is makes people share syringes. So that's caused a really big problem. Uh, so we actually do some pharmacy education around the state and problem areas to try and encourage people to sell syringes uh, or try to sell, try and encourage pharmacists to sell syringes to anybody. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. I'm going to move on. Um, what about overdose prevention? I heard there's some good over, overdose prevention things going on in North Carolina. Can you tell me a little bit about them? Sure. Um, we've got two programs in North Carolina. Uh, we have the amazing Project Lazarus, and we have our agency as well. And we both work off slightly different models. Um, Project Lazarus has a public health model that's based on the premise that drug overdose deaths are preventable and that all communities are ultimately responsible for their own health. So they have a model which uh, works off community activation and coalition building, uh, the monitoring of epidemiological surveillance, uh, the prevention of overdoses through medical education and other means. Um, They also do really active in helping individuals understand the uh, importance of rescue breathing um, and they focus a lot on community members, and they do a lot of evaluation. But what they've been able to do is they go into the highest-risk counties. So they started off in Wilkes County. Um, mm-hmm. The national audience may know its most famous resident, which is Zach Galifianakis. Um, so he's from Wilkes County, and Wilkes County had the third-highest drug overdose rate of death out of any county in the United States. And it's just this rural county in the middle of Carolina, and through um, various of their interventions, which included, you know, doing MD education and getting more naloxone out there, they were able to take it off, you know, the one of the worst counties and make it into an all right county, <laughs> uh, which was really amazing. And they've replicated that model. Uh, they're starting to replicate it in other counties now, but they've basically been able to show if you start an overdose prevention program that you can severely 
reduce the amount of overdose-related deaths. And so they work more on like a county-wide system. And what's different is with our group, uh, what we do is we go into the prisons and jails and do overdose prevention training there uh, because we know once people get released from prison and jail in Carolina, they're eight times more likely to overdose. So we want to get into the prisons and jails before they get released and do overdose prevention training, and we've been able to get into two correction centers, and we're working on expanding that as well. And then we do street-based education and overdose prevention workshops on the street and in drug detoxes. And it's really important because drug overdose in North Carolina is the fourth leading cause of death in our state, and so there needs to be more overdose prevention initiatives. And this is something that's pretty fluent all throughout Appalachia. So we're currently uh, looking to partner with some members in Tennessee, and we're going to host a overdose workshop uh, over in Knoxville to talk about how to get the more uh, Appalachia involved in overdose prevention. Now, uh, tell our audience a little bit about this. Uh, does people's tolerance change when they're when they detox from opiates and they they get that out of their system, such as might happen in prison or in a d- d- drug detox? Can you repeat that? Sorry, my phone. Okay. Yeah. Does does people's tolerance uh, drop when they get off the opiates and they're clean for a while? Yeah, it goes down significantly, um, and that's why we see a lot of overdoses when people get out because they think they could do what they used to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other problem we actually do encounter in North Carolina is, um, you know, there's a lot of prescription drug use, and mm-hmm. in North Carolina we have 9 million people and 17 million people, uh, or there were 17 million prescriptions for oxycodone itself last year. So each member of the state should have had at least two prescriptions of up to 90 pills. And so there's a lot of pills floating around. And uh, one of our big problems is people just have no idea how to recognize it. So a lot of people uh, get pills in North Carolina, and they may only be taking oxycodone so they can work their blue-collar job. And so they don't have to call out sick and then lose pay, so they'll take uh, pain management and then they drink on top of it, and then we get a lot of overdoses that way. And then we also get it when people are using it recreationally. Um, But there's a lot of different ways we're finding people are overdosing in the state. Um, But, yeah, it's it's a big challenge, and definitely when people go into deep the people overdosing when they get out, and their friends are afraid to call 911 because it's not... um, the best uh, Good Samaritan protections in our state. So people are afraid to call 911 because they don't want to get arrested if there's potentially illegal drugs or drugs they don't have a prescription for, which then perpetuates the cycle of death. We actually do workshops um, on the streets in East Durham and Winston-Salem and Greensboro on how to get around uh, the police identifying there's potentially an illegal substance in your house. And we talk about you know, how do you pull people out of your house if you don't feel comfortable with the police potentially coming in there? So it's all things that need to happen because right now people aren't protected necessarily if they call 911. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I know in New York, in New York City, um, heroin overdose has remained pretty steady. It's actually probably dropped some in recent years, and the the increase in overdoses has been through prescription medications in our area. Do you find that to be true in your area too? Yeah, I mean, it's just way too easy for people to get pills. I know in Carolina there was 250 million prescriptions last year, um, and we have a lot of pharmaceutical companies based in our state, so I presume that is making things a bit easier <laughs> where they're encouraging more prescriptions um, of different drugs. But um, we just, there is really an epidemic of prescription drug overdose, and it's getting a lot of media attention in Carolina uh, Tennessee and Kentucky, I can say for sure right now, because it is such a big problem. Um, and Project Lazarus, I think, is making amazing steps and getting more uh, counties around North Carolina to incorporate some countywide models to reduce drug overdose. And we're really thankful that they're here. Yes, we're planning to book some uh, people from Project Lazarus uh, in January, probably. We haven't scheduled them yet, but we think it's a really interesting project, and we'd like to have them on the show, so we're going to pursue that. Yeah, and there, what's awesome about there, it's like a seven-born initiative uh, for seveners, and I just love that, because uh, we don't have enough of those. <laughs> uh, uh, but they uh, they do some amazing work, and hats off to them there great career. Okay, can you tell me a little bit about crack user risk reduction in the South? Sure, so um, compared to injection drug use, we actually have way more problems with crack use in Carolina. And one of the big things that we encounter is people sharing their pipes left and right, um, which leads to several problems. So we know that most pipes are shared between 50 users. And what happens is there's a little metallic filter that they utilize with it, which is called Choboy. Um, and what it does basically is it breaks down after several uses and mm -hmm. people swallow it, so it cuts up the back of their throat. Uh, so they have open sores in the back of the throat when they swallow this filter. And what happens then is if somebody needs to engage in some oral sex in order to get more of a drug, um, they have an open vector in the back of their throat, which could lead to the transmission of disease. Um, also, what we're seeing is people, um, uh, when they smoke crack, the pipe gets really hot and it burns their lips and sometimes leads to open sores and cuts in their lips. And so they're getting blood on the end of the pipe. And we do have multiple people we've tested for viral hepatitis C, and their only um, way they could have gotten it was for sharing their crack pipe. So we know that's a really big issue. So what um, we've done is we really encourage people to use, uh, most harm reduction folks know this, the spark plug covers, which you can put over your pipes. Mm -hmm. um, and there's actually two programs that have sprung up uh, who were inspired by the Canadians uh, to basically run a pipe exchange. So we have two programs doing pipe exchanges in Carolina, um, and they have really huge success with engaging crack users because crack use is one of the top uh, drugs of choice in Carolina. There's about 172,000 crack users. And so what happens with them is... Uh, 
you know, they really have no services available to them. And so these underground programs that are going out and serving them are able to provide them with HIV testing, counseling, detox referral, uh, mental health education and referrals, harm reduction, overdose prevention. Uh, they give them a lot of HIV and viral hepatitis information and do housing referrals for them. They're really great uh, programs. Also, we found that, you know, if you are doing a pipe exchange, you normally can, uh, you'll, <laughs> what will happen is you just will never have enough supplies for everybody because so many people want them because most of the pipes in circulation are just disgusting. Uh, they're really broken down, so being dropped a lot really sharp, they cut people's lips, the people don't like them, and then law enforcement doesn't like them either because they get cut with them and don't know um, that they can actually get hep C exposures that way. So it's a really no-win situation for everybody. So what these programs do is they get these used pipes off the street, um, which then, uh, you know, is going to decrease the hep C seropositivity <laughs> throughout the state, which is amazing. Um, and we know from the Canadian models that, especially from the great work that the folks out in BC and uh, the Toronto crews have done, is it's really like one of the best first engagement tools that you can utilize in harm reduction because it's something people want. And after you got them there, you can start teaching them other risk reduction uh, modules, and it's really just an amazing engagement tool. It really is, and some... One of the things a lot of people don't realize is that harm reduction programs are really a gateway into further risk reduction. They can be a gateway into treatment, into methadone maintenance, buprenorphine, more standard abstinence-based treatments. And it's a way to get a lot of people involved. And people just, you know, look at this as you're handing out crack pipes, you're encouraging people to use crack. But the actual yeah. result is the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. We've seen a lot of folks who, through engaging with these programs, you know, that they were finally like, oh, my gosh, somebody actually cares about me. And, you know, we um, have found that, you know, if you're showing compassion and care, that people actually start doing behavior change on their own just because of that. You know, it may be the first time anybody's shown them compassion and care, in several years, you know, and it, that compassion and care, I think, you know, is one, the basis of what harm reduction is, and two, I think, is the ultimate engagement tool uh, because individuals, especially with uh, low threshold services, like that's just maybe the only thing they can handle, and it may take, you know, five meetings, it may take 100 meetings, but those low threshold services really, I think, are the key to opening the door uh, for the positive change or whatever that person wants uh, to create a better self for them. And that better uh, self may be just using that own pipe every time, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we're going to close up the show in a few minutes here, so just uh, if there's any parting words you'd like to leave our audience with, just uh, go ahead and feel free. Thanks so much. Yeah, um, one of the things that you know, I really like to emphasize is the need of increased resource support for seven programs. Um, compared to the North and the West, what happens is there's city funding, state funding, foundation funding for a lot of those groups, where in the South we don't have that. We only have 
uh, four major programs here: the North Carolina Harm, oh, sorry, five major programs: Project Lazarus, North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition, uh, the Great Atlanta Harm Reduction Center, Streetworks um, over in Nashville, and the Great Dion down in Louisiana doing the uh, work with Women with a Vision, and those are like the key groups. But uh, we we've got this humongous region that we're covering. Uh, with normally just a couple people on the staff, yet we have the highest burden of HIV disease. We have 99.5% of the people on AIDS drug assistance waiting lists. We, you know, uh, this, we have a disproportionate burden of people uh, using hepatitis. We have a disproportionate burden of our population who are incarcerated due to the drug war. Um, and so we have the huge, huge need for harm reduction services, and there just is a lack of funding, which has been a huge problem for a lot of the programs to rise up and create change. So uh, that's one thing I, I like to talk about. And a lot of people are like, why should I invest in the South? There isn't much hope. And for that, I say that's completely wrong. There's a huge amount of hope. Um, there's a huge amount of possibility in the South. And it's also an area of the country which is literally dying for more services. So I'm so glad that great groups like Project Lazarus is helping stopping overdose throughout the South. That's why I'm grateful to Dion with Women with a Vision for changing uh, some of the laws that were against sex workers there. Uh, what they're doing down in Louisiana is they were um, basically anybody who was caught doing sex work there giving them, <laughs> they would take their licenses and put sex offender on it. Um, and Dion's group with several other supportive folks was able to change that. And so we have had victories in the South, and we're hoping in Carolina within the next few years to decriminalize needles. And there's a lot of hope for the future, um, but oftentimes, you know, it's just one or two hardworking activists looking to create change. Uh, and oftentimes they succeeded, and so we're looking to build on that success. We have a really great crew of devoted ad advocates and uh, harm reductionists here, and we're really looking to create positive change with the limited amount of resources that we have. Um, the change is possible, and we look forward to creating that future in the American South. It sounds good. I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest tonight. This is Robert Childs, Executive Director of the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition. Thank you for having me. And we want to invite you all to come back next week. Uh, as Robert mentioned, there is an Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition, and our first guest next week will be Mona Bennett from the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition. And our second guest will be Dr. Richard Wilmot, who is the author of American Euphoria, which is Say No, K-N-O-W, to drugs, so that you should be knowledgeable about drugs if you are going to use them. And thank you, everyone, and good night. <laughs>